millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome back to a brand new episode of Why Would You Tell Me That? With me, Dave Moore, and him, Neil Delamere. Uh, you can get us on... <laughs> we should say, at this point, the reason I'm laughing is because Neil Delamere is currently propping a microphone stand in a half-closed drawer with books. <laughs> because this is how professional this podcast is. What yeah. in the heavens are you doing? Fourth or fifth podcast in, and I took my mic to England, and then I brought oh, what, on a holiday to show him the world. <laughs> here, Mike. Uh, yeah, listen. There's, there's. He can't just be sitting here listening to Irish accents. I just walk around <laughs> London with him, just so he can he can hear different brogues from all over the world. And I don't know where the base is. <laughs> little fuzzy head can absorb other dialects and accents and cultures. But unfortunately, he left his trousers in the UK. <laughs> I would go so far as to say his his legs, not his so much bo- his trousers. His bottom trunk. Yeah, yeah it's all yeah. gone. So if at any point in this podcast you hear a and a thump, that's yeah. simply Neil's baseless microphone uh, landing onto whatever drawer unit he's using to prop it up. Or alternatively, I have just shocked you with such a fact it has caused you to keel over. <laughs> Which is quite possible, actually. Trivia um, that has caused complete lack of consciousness. It, it's <laughs> never been done before, but who knows? Maybe up to now. Well, look, I was trying to say before the mic fell over that you can get us on social media. The show itself is at Why Would You Tell Me That on Instagram. Uh, I'm at Dave Today FM. Neil is at Neil Delamere Comedy. Uh, so jump in, say hello. And uh, if you want to comment on anything we're doing, we're talking about anything you think that uh, we may have missed or whatever, something we need to know about, or if there's a topic you think we should cover as an entire episode on Why Would You Tell Me That feel free to chime in. But at the end of last week's episode, Neil, you mentioned something which, I'll be honest with you, it's kept me awake since then. Yeah, I said to you, had you ever heard of the fact that Scotland had a go at having a colony? And not only a colony, but a colony in Panama. (laughs) You had never heard of this, had you? No, this is the first I'd ever heard of this. And I cannot wait to find out what is going to happen in part two of this podcast. Who we're talking to, what's going on? We are talking to Dr. Andrew McKillop. He is a senior lecturer in Scottish history in the School of Humanities in the University of Glasgow. And he's going to tell us about this Darien scheme, which was an attempt, I suppose in some ways, a kind of a forerunner of the Panama Canal. Certainly the idea was to use Panama to enhance their trade. And some people would argue that the success or failure, won't tell you which, 
I think you can probably guess, <laughs> of the Darien scheme, as it was called, led to the conditions that might have led to the act of union between Scotland and England. Some oh. people would suggest that. So we're going to ask Andrew. Ramifications were there. On the ramifications are fod. Okay, <laughs> well, we look forward to that in part two. Anyway, you're lucky I'm talking to you. I have just done what can only be described as iconic television in the UK. And not just iconic because I was on it, but iconic long before me, Dave. You know this what I'm talking true. about. true. Tell everybody what you have just done. This is amazing. I did Dictionary Corner on Countdown, the longest oh. daily quiz show in the world, I believe. The the, world. The just told me it was so cool this is i i've been watching this since i was a kid i watched it with my mom when i got back from school yeah. and i was doing the dictionary corner bit you know the bit where you sit beside Susie dent who's a total legend oh and God. who looks the same from like she's been on that show for 30 years yeah and looks the exact same and rachel riley is doing the numbers and uh colin murray was hosting so, I mean, this is like utterly iconic, obviously to any, you know, international listeners that may not know this show, but to anyone in Ireland and the UK, this is a big deal. Countdown is, and Dictionary Corner, I always feel there's so much pressure on the comedian in Dictionary Corner because you've got to be funny, but you've also got to tailor your material to suit what I can only assume is an audience that would not typically be coming to see Neil Delamere shows in London. I'll see that and I'll raise you the fact there is no audience. What? Yeah, there's no live audience. Um, I don't think it came back after COVID. Now, hopefully they'll get it again. Right. So you're just playing to kind of Colin and Rachel and Susie and the crew and stuff. Now, it's a bit strange, but I know Colin reasonably well and we've done various bits and pieces of radio together. And we have to be careful not to Irish it up too much because that's kind of our default setting because obviously a lot of people in Britain are watching this British show. There is that. You know, and we have this unspoken agreement we won't do two Irish stuff. First three letters, one of the words, R-U-C. Two of us, lock eyes. <laughs> and he's looking at me going, don't go for it. And I'm like, I'm going to go for it. <laughs> please, please let the next letter, three letters out be IRA. Please, 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 please. But they're not. No. Um, but there was this moment in the middle of it. So, you know, they come to you. So if people don't know the show, letters are mixed up. Brilliant contestants figure out the longest word they can get from the letters. And then they go to Dictionary Corner and you're sitting beside somebody who's actually qualified. And then you give your two cents worth, right? So there's one round I'm looking down. And I've got nothing, Dave. I've got nothing. nothing. I can feel the, like, I, I, I don't even have a three. I have a, wow. have a cold sweat coming on my back. Now, I know that Susie, you know, as I think people would probably know, Susie will give you a word right. if you're stuck, you know? If you're stuck, yeah. So I look across at her and, like, there's 10 seconds left. And, and I can hear the music quicken, you know, do-do. Of course. Do, 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 do. And she goes, she goes, Etalon. Right? <laughs> now, and, and, right? And I was like, what? She goes, Etalon. And, and it's a physics term. And I'm, I have about five seconds to process. I'm not going to say that I got the word Etalon. No one is going to believe that I got the word Etalon. Not only is no one going to believe it, no one's going to believe I know the word Etalon. And Colin Murray's going to say, what, does that, what is that? What does I'm that gonna, mean, Neil? I'm going to go, <laughs> but that's not the main reason I didn't say it. This is a testament to what adrenaline does to you. I thought you said etalon, which <laughs> is the Irish word in Gaelic for our international listeners for aeroplane. Yes. Why she would say an Irish word in an 
English UK television program. I can only assume at this point she's saying to you, you're so dead. You might as well get the on get on and get home. Because you know nothing. <laughs> that would be an amazing heckle. You know that taxi? You know, yeah. Taxi for Dave Moore. They've just <laughs> just moved the mode of transport she, up. But she's so also mad. learned it off in Irish. Yeah. So that she can add insult to injury and go, oh, you've got nothing there, do you? Echelon for your man. <laughs> so my brain kind of exploded going, one, how does she know the word echelon? This is like, she, I thought she only was an expert in English. This is yeah. so impressive. Two, what's she using as a father? I'm looking at that. <laughs> I'm looking at the letters they've got. I can't see the father, but maybe my mind is just swimming. And I'm Rachel, gonna... Rachel's loaned her a sideways one. And she's putting yeah. it at a weird angle. <laughs> and I'm just... And they, oh. they, they go to the other two contestants, and Colin Murray looks at me, and I'm thinking, I, I was, I was gonna say it. I was gonna say it. I was gonna say it. echelon, and just see, see what it's the Irish word for aeroplane, Colin, and just see what happened. <laughs> uh, but I, I didn't. I spot. I can't remember what the other word was. Yeah, there was another word in there that was jumped out at me at the last minute. But yeah, that was a bit weird. <laughs> I'd say so. Um, but having done it, yeah, is it is it? the way you thought it would be. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, does it feel when you're doing it like when it's when you're watching it on, on the telly? Um, it do, there's not that much pressure on you because, I right. mean, it's obviously the two contestants are there and they're, like, they're unbelievable. There was a fella there who got uh, multiple nine-letter words. And by the way, we should explain again to people who don't know the show, show that nine-letter words are the maximum you can get because there are only nine jumbled up letters in, yeah. in a round. He, yeah, he, he got, words. yeah, Dave, I couldn't have got nine if they gave me 14 letters. I'll be perfectly honest with you. But there was one point where I couldn't contain my level of excitement. So they don't go, there's a, around the numbers round, you pick up um, mm-hmm. six numbers, I think it is, isn't it? And a random number is generated and you have to figure out how to get to that random number. Yeah. And the two contestants couldn't do it. They don't go to dictionary corner. But I was oh. like, come to me, come to me. Because <laughs> I had it and I was allowed to do it. No way. I was allowed to do it. And then when I got it, Rachel Riley went, and all of Ireland cheers. And Colin Murray just went, not all of Ireland, because he's <laughs> from the north and he knows he can throw a little dig in. Yeah. And I was laughing. So uh, I was just, it was bucket list stuff. So. Oh, that is And phenomenal. I was working for us, Dave. I was working because if you don't think that I didn't bore the arse off Susie Dent with our episode two about oh. linguistics. Linguistics and, and numbers. numbers and names and numbers and everything. Yes, Neil Delamere. And she was into it. And I am, fingers crossed, hoping that Susie Dent might do this. Ah, show. stop. Stop. Yeah. yeah. To, to anyone, again, if people don't know, that is, why would you tell me that royalty? Oh. I mean, it's people like Susie Dent who've inspired us to create this podcast. Yeah, I would go so... It's beyond royalty. I mean, in royalty, I would only say is like king or queen. Like, right. what's empress? I think Ooh. she's like she's beyond that even. If you manage to get Susie Dent on this podcast, then I mean, I don't know what to do. Yeah, um, Yoda. Who's, yeah. who's next after what's, that? What's the equivalent after that? Yeah, we'd probably uh, we'd probably have to do some sort of Ouija board Albert Einstein thing. <laughs> I'd imagine it's it's doable. It's doable. <laughs> well, look, if I can bring you back down to earth, Mister High Flying UK Television, leaving half your microphone gear in the UK, Hold Neil Delamere. Bring me back down to earth. You're, you're taking the piss out of Echelon again, aren't you? <laughs> yes, bring your Echelon back down and tell me what's going to happen in the episode about the Darien scheme. 
Okay, back down to earth. Before we do our Susie Dent episode, let's concentrate on this one. Now, do you know the way in part one we look at things that are closely related to our fact in, in the second half of the show? Yep. So I started looking up things, you know, colonies, countries that claim other territories. But the thing is that that's kind of ten a penny, right? I did, in the course of my research, find a place that nobody claims and nobody wants. No really? man's land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got to be rare in this uh, vast expanse of capitalism around the whole globe. So you, Yeah, you would have thought you're better off just, as my father would say, you're better off having it than wanting it. You're dead right. Better off to have, was it better off to look at it? Have it to be looking no, for it. Better to be looking at it than looking for it. Yes. There you are. Yeah, all the all the best idioms are um, preposition based. Of Is that even a phrase? <laughs> uh, th- yeah, there's a place called uh, Bar Tawil. I think is how you pronounce okay. it, uh, and that, that's the Arabic pronunciation. It means tall water well. Every single part of my Midlands head wants to say bar towel. Bar towel. It really does. <laughs> what does an awfully person put on a sunbed to reserve it? Bar towel, <laughs> and it's somewhere between those two. <laughs> Those two pronunciations. My, my apologies to the Arabic community, right? <laughs> so it's 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 between Egypt and Sudan. Okay, so my understanding Africa. is Egypt is north of Sudan. Am I right about that? Yes, it is. Yeah, and they, they, they share a border yeah. as well. If you imagine a kind of a, a rubber, right, with a very straight border between the two, that's what it looks that's like. That's right, because who carved out that border? Because it, it, was, it was man-made. Hmm. 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 I'm going to bring you back to a little crowd of plucky lads operating out of London called the Brits, <laughs> the British Empire. Yes. Uh, who carved out all troublesome borders, Dave? Yes. Yeah, you're right. It, it was them. So basically, neither Egypt nor, or, nor Sudan want this particular place. It's about 2,000 square kilometers, okay. about 800 square miles, right? Do you know the bit in Father Ted where Mrs. Doyle and her friend are trying to pay for lunch? Yes. Do you know that? Yeah. That's what it reminds me of. Egypt's like, I insist, Sudan, you have it. I don't want it. I, don't, I couldn't possibly. I get the next 2,000 square kilometer parcel of land. Okay, well, I can't wait to hear why there's a, a piece of land that neither country is willing to go. It would definitely be beneficial to us to have that. Well, well, let me describe it first. Um, it's It's got no permanent roads. Okay. Um, no towns, uh, no permanent residents. Um I don't know if I said permanent roads there. Like, there are temporary <laughs> yeah, yeah. roads. Well, again, Father Ted, at one point, they did bring in the roads because the storm was so bad. So This is true. Yeah. You can see our influences here, can't you? <laughs> it has no access to the sea. It has five central shops, a Lidl and a Spa. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. But you know somebody from Lidl is going, mm, there's an opening here. Um, so you would think that you're better off having it than you're not having it, right? Uh, like Because you never know. Maybe at some point somebody will discover oil there sure. or gold or diamonds yeah. or something very expensive. Printer toner. <laughs> Something really expensive, right? But neither country wants it because it would affect their claim to a much larger, more valuable piece of land. See, this oh. is, yeah, yeah, this is how this plays out. So it starts in 1899 and the Brits and the Egyptians signed this treaty, right, that sets the border between Egypt and Sudan as this straight line. Okay. Uh, the 22nd parallel. So as we said, Egypt north of this horizontal line and Sudan right under it, south of the 22nd parallel, right? This treaty leaves... Uh, Bertowel or Birtawil under the 22nd parallel okay. south of it, so it's in Sudan. Right. And there's another area called the Halaib Triangle north of the 22nd parallel, so it's in Egypt. Now, this triangle, way bigger, 10 times bigger, access to the Red Sea, way more valuable. Okay. okay. Then in 1902, the authorities say, actually, uh, Bertawil, it's, it's, it's more frequented by nomadic tribes from Egypt. It should be under Egyptian administrative control, right? right. And the Halaib Triangle, 
more culturally close to Khartoum, so that should be controlled by Sudan. So the 1902 treaty swaps the two places okay. in terms of the administration. And would you have to so, cross through Bir Tawil to get to the triangle, like if you were Sudanese? No. Okay. No. Okay. 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 But to this day, both countries want the Halaib Triangle. So Egypt draws its maps based on the 1899 treaty and Sudan draws them based on the 1902. Gotcha. In other words, to claim the better parcel of land, they have to support a treaty that loses them. Yes, yes, yes. Do do you know when, do you know the way Irish uh, people traditionally have claimed all the US presidents like Reagan, Clinton and Obama and Biden and Biden. And and when Trump came along, all the genealogists were like, uh, we've we've locked up like we (laughs) all the... John John lost a key for the T section <laughs> and it's really far back yeah. and nobody wants it. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. Okay, but be- of course because it's it's unclaimed, every sort of looper has then claimed it. Well, that's, I was going to ask. I was going to say that if there is a piece of land that is famous enough that you've told me all this stuff and there are treaties about it, there's got to be some crazy Americans going the kingdom of something or other. <laughs> How did you go for Americans first? <laughs> you just think it's not an Irish thing to do. You just think, ah, no, after our past. It just would would feel wrong. It would feel wrong to go around claiming lands off other people, yeah. Or during the Celtic Tiger, there's, uh, if it was going to happen, it was going to Celtic Tiger, wasn't it? Yeah. It I have a lovely two, two bed and bare to wheel there for you if you want, <laughs> you want to get out a 110% mortgage on it. You'd be, you'd be collected by a taxi driver who just bought a place in Kusadasi and <laughs> a small little parcel of land in between the <laughs> Egyptian and Sudanese border. It was an American... Yeah, a few people have claimed it, actually. One of the most famous ones was... 2014, a farmer from Virginia called Jeremiah Heaton claimed it. And he did it for a very specific reason. Now, I don't know what you think of this. You have four children. See how this strikes you, right? His daughter was six. She's going through a phase. Yeah. She wants to be a, fill in the gap. Princess. You know, something that was going to be princess or was going to be mermaid, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah. It was princess. Uh, so he sees this area of land and he goes, do you know something? I can claim that and I'll be the king. Mm. So he goes there. He gets the paperwork from the Egyptians. He starts this 14 hour journey, goes down there and then he lands there, plants a flag, goes, I'm the king and my daughter is the princess. An official princess. An official princess. And of course, everybody on social media takes that in the generous spirit that it's intended as a gesture. (laughs) He is ripped to shreds. Yes. For being a white colonialist and also for being a bad parent as well. Now, in fairness, the bad parenting, like I wanted to be a ninja turtle when I was a kid. My dad didn't go, all right, I'm going to give up my job. <laughs> I've got to become a scientist yeah. so I can splice your DNA with Jean-Claude Van Damme <laughs> and the loggerhead amphibian. So, I mean, I don't know where you stand on this. Uh, well, as a parent, I can understand, you know, the desire to make sure that your princess gets whatever she desires. However, you know, usually that is a dress, a trip to the cinema to see Frozen 2, uh, you know, that that's the kind of level of demand that a six-year-old will put on you. I, I don't ever remember either of my six-year-old twin daughters saying to me, Daddy, go into the Egyptian-Sudanese border and declare me some land immediately. So um, it's, it's quite a leap, isn't it? Yeah. I want to be a princess. Darling, get the atlas. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think I would wait it out. Oh, yeah. Surely they, they want to be something else when they're eight. Yeah, there is that. They do. The things like that change, change a lot. What did you want to be when you were seven? Um, I always wanted to be a fireman. Um, and then I found out that you had to be brave and I decided against it. And that's why I'm now a radio presenter and a podcast host. 
But if you were seven and your father said, do you, if your father brought you out to an industrial estate that was abandoned and just said to you, Dave, you want to be a fireman? And you said, yeah. And he goes, do you really want it? And you said, yeah. And he goes, okay, there's no going back now. And just set a building on fire. Whoosh. Just whoosh. <laughs> go, 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 go. <laughs> just put on the music of Fireman Sam and you're running in with a tiny ladder. This weekend just gone, I had a very small, and I'm thankfully very small, chimney fire, which lasted really? about three minutes uh, and my wife was cool and calm and collected and decided to remove some of the blazing logs from the fire in a very you know careful and calm manner at which point I ran the house going ah everybody everybody <laughs> everybody and they were like what and I was like I don't know is it safe inside or outside I have no idea so yeah I think I, I, I would have failed any fireman exam I would have done anyway so Desperately trying to remember backdraft whether you should open the door and let all the oxygen in or not. Yeah. Just trying to run through it in your head. I don't know. Although obviously now, listen, you can get out and giving your kids presents this Christmas, I would have thought. Oh. If the chimney is fundamentally damaged, oh, he's no way in, does he? You've got a good point. Although he, he is magical, I suppose. Yeah, yeah he'll yeah. probably get in some way. Figure it out some way. Well, I cannot wait to learn more about this. We are going to talk to Dr. Andrew about the Darien scheme. Up next, and why would you tell me that? Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yes, so now we're joined from the University of Glasgow by the senior lecturer in Scottish history. I, I should I said the 
I assume that there's more than one senior lecturer in Scottish history, <laughs> Dr. Andrew McKillop. Uh, hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Neil. And yourself? And yes, there is more than one <laughs> yeah, yeah, senior yeah. lecturer in Scottish history. You- you just doing everything, everything from the beginning of Scottish history to now <laughs> would be quite difficult. Um, so it's my job today to get you to explain the Darien scheme to Dave. He's never heard anything about it and I have to kind of justify my picks. So let's start with the basics. Uh, what was it exactly? Oh, where do you start and how long have you got? Um, <laughs> I mean, I suppose the Darien scheme is, in in one sense, it's 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 typical of the sort of overseas colonialism, which a lot of European states, in a sense, have been getting up to um, for almost 200 years. Uh, characteristically, Scotland is getting in late in the act. Basically, it's it's an attempt to establish a, what we would see as a reasonably modern commercial organisation, meaning it's got subscribers, it's got stock, it's got directors, and effectively, they're trying to establish a, 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 an oceanic trade that involves establishing colonies in the Americas, and and then essentially trading in goods. And by about the middle of the 1690s, Scotland decides for any number of different reasons that it needs to get in on the act. Um, now, remember, Spain's been doing this since since Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, as it were. Uh, you know, the Portuguese have got in the act, the Dutch, the English, everyone's been, 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 been tooling up and getting on with European colonialism for a long time. And Scotland's been trying on and off, and frankly, it's not been very successful. And then in the 1690s, it just decides it needs to go for it. And it does, but it's a good example of a country which, having lots of trial and error shown to it by other countries, doesn't really take up much of the lessons and promptly makes um, a serious mess of it with major implications for the country's history. I do appreciate the use of the phrase tooling up. Just It's like a Guy Ritchie film that you've suddenly just ejected into history there. So we're talking about 1698 and we're talking about Scotland looking towards Panama, Dave. Okay, so what were the kind of overriding governmental or economic circumstances that would have led Scotland to make a decision that 200 years later down the line after the Spanish have been doing it for that long to go, do you know, do you know what, we'll give a go, lads. Let's house off into the sea in a boat and see what happens. Uh, <laughs> fairly good question. Uh, I mean, Scotland is, is by European standards, a, a fairly poor country. And its problem up to a point is it's getting poorer. Uh, the economic climate actually, in some senses, has, has interesting resonances with today. There's a lot of economic nationalism floating around. And as a small northern European kingdom, in a sense, Scotland struggling with the big boys. Um, it's not helped by the fact that she has, as indeed for that matter as the Kingdom of Ireland, have a monarchy which is technically their own monarchy, but of course is also the monarchy of England. Mm. And that monarchy does what is ever in England's best interests. And the crucial point is that um, under um, the new regime of William of Orange, which has come in in late 1688, 1689, um, the, the, the kingdoms of England, Ireland and Scotland have been directed um, towards an all-out war with the Kingdom of France, which involves the destruction and displacement of large amounts of European trade. So believe it or not, for reasons largely to do with English uh, uh, national priorities, Scotland is having her European markets cut off. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar, uh, (laughs) I I, I don't don't know what would. Um, In other words, fundamentally, um, for reasons of English strategy, 
Scotland is in a sense starting to fight some of her best European markets. France and the Netherlands are, are, are two of the key areas where Scotland tends to put in a lot of her goods. And these markets are really, really um, struggling by about the middle of the 1690s. The result is the Scottish Parliament, which has in a sense benefited constitutionally from sort of the overthrow of the old Stuart monarchy, sort of tries to flex its commercial muscle and its economic muscle and says, right, let's replace those markets in Europe with, with, with effectively colonial markets. We'll head towards Spain, territories in the New World, particularly Central America, which he hasn't really claimed and settled, and we'll essentially stake a claim and then undertake trade in both the Atlantic and in the Pacific. So in a sense, they, they were trying to presage what would, of course, later become, in a way, the Panama Canal. They're trying to, they're trying to create a, 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 connect, a connection. Oh, right. So hang on. I'm sorry to interrupt. So was the, was the idea here that rather than create a canal, that they would create uh, some kind of a transport system from one side of Jarry into the other? That's, yeah. They're basically trying to set up a, what you would almost describe as a sort of free port arrangement. They're going, to, they're, going to, they're going to try and set it up so that there's a port on the Atlantic side and they'll ship goods to the Pacific side and then essentially try and control the flow of goods across both Pacific and Atlantic. So it's nothing if not ambitious. That's a great idea, though, right? I mean, this is before the Panama Canal, so this is a strong business idea. Well, it's a business idea, certainly. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 you've just been you've just been slammed by an academic, right? It's it's an idea, but I mean, you wouldn't pass your thesis with it, Dave. I, I'm 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 going I'm going to quibble with the prefix throng there. Okay, well, let's but, hear the rest uh, of it. So, can I can I rephrase Dave's point to suggest that it is a good idea if you maybe have the resources to back mm. it up, but Scotland at this point doesn't. Can you explain um, how, so, so this isn't a kind of a, a national country movement. This is a business opportunity. So my understanding is that it was driven by a very charismatic leader called William Patterson. And he essentially convinced the company of Scotland to raise money to do this. Is that right? That's right. I mean, in, in, in some senses, it's it's a weird, it's a weird um, organization because it's established by the national authority of the parliament and you know it's it's title is the company of scotland trading to africa and the indies that's actually its full title and it's set up um interestingly to to try and mirror the, the sort of east india companies that have been established by oh, the right. english and the dutch so particularly the english and the dutch and to some extent the french so it's essentially a you could think of it as a sort of public-private um, partnership. It's got the backing of the Scottish state for all that the Scottish state can give it backing, which is not a lot. But essentially, it's a private organisation with subscribers who who are then going to essentially raise capital, buy the ships, and then head off and start trading. So is that how they did it then? It was like a, a flotation, like a stock flotation, and it was like, buy into this company, invest your money, we'll take it, we'll build this cross Panamanian port-to-port uh, -port business. And then when we come back, you'll all be millionaires. That is exactly it. It's, it's a wow. class. And that's why it's, it, it almost sounds quite modern in the sense that it's, it's a sort of um, subscription flotation with, a, with an idea um, uh, to, 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 to try across Panama. But I think it's worth pointing out that the company of Scotland's remembered for Panama, but that wasn't what it was originally going to do. 
what, oh. it, was origi- what it was originally going to do before William Patterson persuaded the directors otherwise actually was undertake exactly what the Dutch and the English were doing. And that was fill ships with the sort of goods which sell well in the big markets in Asia and essentially ship out to Asia and then bring back um, goods from, from you know, places like modern day Indonesia, maybe China and certainly India, and then sell them in European markets. How did he convince them to go, you know something, forget about the tried and trusted method, we should go to Panama? That is an extremely good question. It begs one of the what-ifs, the big what-ifs of Scottish history, because the company actually does send a couple of ships out to Asia, and they're very profitable. (laughs) Um, So ironically, if if they'd carried on doing that, they would probably have ended up the way the Danes and the Swedes ended up. They do exactly that. They set up small companies, and they effectively run in between the sort of feet of the really big European East India companies, the French and the Dutch. They do. They do fine. William Patterson, however, is essentially a mover and a shaker. And he's a sort of, he's, 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 he's got a reputation for thinking very innovatively about the latest financial trends. Remember, he's, he's been one of the key figures in establishing the Bank of England in 1694. Oh, wow. I mean, he's a, he's a Scot. He's, he's like a lot of Scots. He's emigrated into London and he's sort of part of a European um, sort of move to think about essentially finances and derivatives. Now, in terms of who, who got involved, um, there is undoubtedly Scottish national pride at stake because initially when the company tries to raise the capital for what was going to be the, the, the tried and tested method, they try to raise it on the London money markets. But the English East India Company persuades William of Orange and the English Parliament, you can't let the Scots raise money. They're a foreign power. You can't allow them to do this. Now, you, Scots are kind of going, hold on a minute, we're, we're your allies in your war with France. Why are you denying us access to capital? And the English just shrug their shoulders and go, that's the way the big boys play. Right. The Scots get a brand new chip on their shoulder and, 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 decide, <laughs> and decide that they will raise the capital largely from within their own relatively limited financial pool. They try also in Europe, but again, English interests just squash it. So this sounds to me like the, in this day and age, you would use Kickstarter, you would do some kind of a video about how great the Starian scheme is going to be, and then you would ask for funding. Effectively, this happened this way, but in 1690s. That's right. I mean, basically, uh, the, the word gets out in the early months of uh, 1696, um, you know, in, in, in the middle of Edinburgh and Glasgow, that the, the, English, the, the option of English funding is gone. And effectively, you get a sort of patriotic rallying. And the company opens two big subscription books in Edinburgh and Glasgow um, and start to raise capital really about the beginning of March 1696. It's worth pointing out that the country is just going into what's going to be a huge famine. Mm. Um, um, I mean, the, Scotland suffers a famine in the mid-1690s, too, which is going to kill one in eight Scots. So the country is, is in major trouble. Huge numbers are beginning to emigrate to Ulster to get to, literally to get away from the famine. So the country's in all sorts of trouble. But meanwhile, people are gaily sort of subscribing um, to the company, and it raises £400,000 sterling um, by August when they, when they close the books. What's that in today's money-ish? That's, Four Bitcoin. Oh. Four Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's about the value of the 
the pound sterling to the euro, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, but anyway, that's probably a political point. But I mean, it is by it is by the standards of a small, relatively underdeveloped Northern European country, a huge sum of money. Okay. So what's um, what's this spent on? Four or five ships. So in the end, the the company the company is persuaded by Patterson to sort of you know not build its own, but just go and buy vessels. That means they're overpriced. They have a fleet of about 11 vessels in the end, um, which they send out in two big expeditions to Darien. So there's a lot of high spend. The kind of Scots aren't used to dealing with the sort of shipping you need um, that gets you across the Atlantic. So they tend to go to Europe to buy the ships. They pay above the asking price. So they're kind of being had as well as showing innovation and in, in raising the money. They show no innovation in how they spend it. I, I read something that I want you to confirm or uh, blow out of the water. So we got five ships leaving Leith, I think, near Edinburgh uh, That's right. in, in 1698. Is it true that William Patterson, the guy who is leading this, and one other captain knew where the ships were headed and nobody else knew? Is that true? There's evidence to suggest, I mean, certainly the directors and all the leading people on the, on the, on the general council know where they're going, but they did keep a lot of people in the dark because they didn't want the word getting out that they were heading for Spanish territory for very good reasons, because they, if that got out, the Spanish would, would, would have made an effort to prevent them. So it's probably a mixture. You know, it's, it's not that no one knows, but they are keeping it in effect a commercial secret. And I don't mean to, you know, brush over any of the details here, but as we mentioned at the start, as Neil asked me in the first part, how well do I think that this Darien scheme went and the fact that there are no, you know, famous Panamanian Scottish colonies, I figured it went pretty badly. So when they got on the ships and headed for Panama, how did that whole expedition go? Um, not well. <laughs> um, so you've got the big expedition of the summer of 1698, which, you know, leaves five ships, well over a thousand colonists. So it's a big, big effort. They get to this place, which uh, this bay in, 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 in now central Panama and sort of, you know, name it Caledonia and sort of set up a fort and, and do all this sort of stuff. They rapidly discover that the wind patterns are such that it's now impossible to get a ship out of the bay. Oh, it's, no. it's badly it's badly tidal and more importantly the local climate just starts killing them in very large numbers tragically uh, there's a reinforcements arrive at the end of the year um, and, and then head back to start telling don't send the second expedition but they arrive too late so there's a second big expedition comes out in the summer of 1699 so you get another thousand odd people arrive they find almost nobody's left alive they re-establish the colony for a second time by this point the Spanish are arriving to reclaim what they say is their territory. And believe it or not, the Scottish colony actually fights a battle with the Spanish and unbelievably they win. That's why our oh. Scots talk. We talk about the Battle of Tupacanti as Scotland's last way win. Where they literally defeat the Spanish. But they're dying in such large numbers. Eventually they just ask the Spanish, can we leave? And by the middle of 1700, colony is over and the company has lost the vast majority of its capital. So if if 2,000 plus people went to colonise Darien, how many made it back to Scotland? Oh, almost almost nobody. Um, wow. Probably, probably less than 100. Um, God. Uh, now, that, now, more of them survive than that, but most of them interestingly settle in Jamaica mm. or they settle in, in New York. They, they just, they just they don't make it back. You mentioned Jamaica there, which obviously at that point is under English rule. 
could they or did they try to trade with England and what was the response if so? They did. When, when the resupply fleet arrives, they've discovered that some of the original colonists have headed into the English parts of, of, of the Caribbean and North America to ask for help, in effect. And they're, they're denied it. And they're denied it on explicit instructions from William of Orange. Because William of Orange's line is, I need to not antagonize the Spanish as I fight my major war with France. So he's determined that the Scottish irritants, as he see it, will not upset his foreign policy. So he orders English governors, colonial governors in Jamaica and in, in, in English North America, um, don't don't help the Scots. Um, you can give them you can give them refuge once their colony's over, but you can't help them sustain it. That again causes an awful lot of bitterness amongst um, aspects of Scottish society. And what would have happened then upon the return? to the people who went, but also to the people who had invested. Presumably, as Neil said, it's, these were everyday people who took maybe their life savings and invested in this and you know, presumably came out with nothing. So what was the reaction in Scotland? Suffice to say, they're distinctly unhappy. I mean, the, the investor base is huge. There's probably about 1,300 investors in total. Now, that's from people like the Duchess of Hamilton. She's top rank aristocracy down to, I think I heard one of you say sort of butchers, bakers and candlestick makers. And that actually is, is about right. So you've got lots of merchants and um, the landed are the landed gentry, but lots of sort of um, guilds and trades people invest, you know, smaller amounts. Mm. The result is they've pretty much lost everything. But there's an important but here. Um, they raise £400,000. But actually, the subscribers only give the company about £154,000. So if you sort of think of it, they haven't put in all of their subscriptions. Right. They're, they're due to give them their subscriptions, but actually they've only handed over about £154,000 by the time they find out that the Darien scheme has failed. So in that sense, that they're, they're in that sort of very modern condition. They're an investor who's overextended and still owes a lot of nominal debt, but they actually aren't paying it. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense, yeah. You don't pay the rest of your subscriptions because the, the, the Darren scheme has been a disaster. Politically speaking, how is it treated? Do people say, oh, well, this is a failure and our money's gone? Do they blame the English? Do they blame William of Orange? Which, by the way, we should write that name down. He sounds like an interesting character, Dave, that we should talk about. I don't <laughs> yeah. know if he's had, had any effect over here. Um, <laughs> I think he made friends and influenced people in Ireland. Yes, too. He, he did. Sure yeah. did. Yeah. So, so how is it treated politically, the, the failure of this scheme? I mean, it's for William of Orange as King of Scotland, or King of Scots to be precise, it's an unmitigated disaster. Remember, this is the guy that's already had his fingers wrapped by the Scottish Parliament for, for the massacre of Glencoe in 1692. So as a king of Scots, he is roundly, roundly distrusted, if not hated. Now, it's causing problems for his government. And he basically tries to say, look, the best way out of this is to negotiate a union between England and Scotland so that essentially we don't get these, these problems emerging. One of the last bits of his reign in late 1701, 1702, on the back of the disaster, is to say to representatives of the Scottish and English parliaments, start to negotiate for union. And to be fair, that process commences. They actually end up agreeing quite a lot. But one of the reasons that the union of England and Scotland doesn't happen in 1702 is because the Scots insist that the English 
particularly the English crown under William, are to blame for the failure of the Darien colony. Now, that's actually pushing it a bit. Mm. Um, it was William Patterson. It was a lot of bad commercial decisions that went into it. But the Scots go, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Let's blame our English southern neighbours and demand compensation. Interestingly, the English go, no, nah, no way. So the 1702 negotiations fail. Now, I think that should tell you something important about Darien. Alongside the idea that Darien should never have happened and should have been trading into India and China, the second big myth is that it caused the union. Actually, the initial running was that it probably made union less likely, not more likely. Okay. But um, because, in a sense, the conditions between the two countries were now really very, very poor. Second effect is when there's an election in Scotland, that what's called the Scottish Country Party wins. And one of the first things they do when they come back in in the early 1700s is they begin to dismantle the power of the Scottish crown over parliamentary affairs. So they make Scotland response, Parliament responsible for foreign policy, etc. That really alarms the English Parliament and that sets up the basis for the round of negotiations in 1706-7, which does result in union. The big okay. difference is this time round, the English commissioners agree to compensate the Scots for Darien. For Darien. And have you any idea what that number was? They actually give them a big sum of money known as the equivalent, well over £300,000. Off that, about £220,000 was compensation for the Darien subscribers. So in a sense, they're getting their money back um, from um, essentially a, a grant from the English Parliament. So this is a classic example of the, the, the honourable tradition of the British state, which has always privatised the profits and always nationalised the debt. Um, <laughs> yes. what, what they're doing is nationalising a, a bunch of private subscribers' debt. One of the big things that, that people always forget is they say, well, Scotland was bankrupt. The Scottish state wasn't bankrupt because Scotland didn't run a national debt. The people who were bankrupt were individual Scottish investors. It gotcha. sounds awfully like the phrase bailing out the bondholders, Dave, doesn't it? <laughs> Something of which we have some degree of experience. Which I, I, I don't like to say that Scotland in 1706 sounds like Ireland in 2008, but it is. <laughs> but it does. <laughs> there, are, there are broad similarities. I was ringing an alarm bell for me, and the other thing in our conversation that was uh, emigrating to Ireland to escape a famine, possibly not the best thing in the world. I mean, it's, it's okay for about 150 years, but uh, well, it comes I mean, to I mean, us all I mean, eventually. It, it, it does. I mean, it does, it does point out now that's Scots, you know, remember, who are now displacing local Irish peasantry and population as they move into Ulster which should give you an idea of how bad conditions are in Scotland. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dr. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Not at all. Neil and I will be in touch with our wonderful pyramid yes. scheme very shortly. <laughs> I'm not investing. I'm not falling for that. Johnny Ponzi. That's my online wrestling name. <laughs> us Scots, we're far too sensible now to do anything like that. That's true. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Okay, bye, everyone. Thanks, bye, yeah. Well, Dave, I mean, I hadn't heard of it. I just kind of came across the Darien scheme and uh, I thought Andrew was brilliant in explaining it. But uh, I think it justifies why I would tell you that. Yeah, absolutely. I I think what I love about these episodes is the very concise learning curve you go on when talking to an expert. Yeah, 
rather than our nonsense. Yeah, exactly. We'll meander and wander and talk about this and talk about that. But like when you get someone in there who knows exactly what the whole history is and can succinctly and concisely deliver it to us, I love that stuff. If you actually were going to colonize somewhere, if you had done the Birta Wheel uh, or were going to Panama and you had Dave Land... What would, you, what would you have? Would you have, I mean, what would be on the flag? What would, actually, no, given your musical background, what's the anthem? You're right about my musical background. I'm quite passionate about anthems in the sense that I believe all national anthems are too long. They're just, <laughs> they're too long. And even when we wrote a modern one in Ireland's call for the rugby, it's too long. So in Dave Land, I would show up the rest of the world. By our anthem. So what would happen is the players would come out for whatever matches we're playing. I'm not sure what what Dave Land dominates as a sport. We haven't got that far in our in our culture yet. But imagine you don't just play it; you dominate. Oh, dominate! Like it so far. Okay. So the the world stars of Dave Land come out and they stand with their hands behind their back as the national anthem has just played for Ireland's Aaron Levine or America's Star Spangled Banner, whatever it is. And then the Dave Land anthem comes on, and it's the Spice Girls. Stop right now, <laughs> except it goes. If you know the lyrics of the song, it simply goes, Stop right now. And then collectively, all the players go, Thank you very much. So <laughs> we're polite and we're succinct. And then the match can kick off. You've I love that. that. <laughs> can I get a visa? Can I be the first person to apply for a visa for Dave Land? Oh, you can apply. I'm not sure I'll grant it, though. Uh, Neil, thank you very much for the Jarian scheme. It's a fascinating piece of history and something I knew nothing about. And the fact that, OK, maybe it didn't quite precipitate the union. It certainly precipitated the circumstances that precipitated the union of England yeah. and Scotland. It's amazing. Uh, we're going slightly over now. So uh, stop right now. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> Excellent, Neil Delamere. That's enough of this. Listen, so what are you going to tell me next week that will blow my mind? Okay, next week. I'm going to share with you a passion of mine Mm -hmm. and a chap who also shares this passion, except he turned his passion into a billion-dollar company. A billion dollars? A billion-dollar company. Which begs the question, why didn't young Dave do that? Because I am a big fat loser and this guy is a go-getter. And we're going to find out all about it next week. I'm, I've been dying to do an episode on this for even before I knew that we had this podcast. I wanted to tell people about this. So next week, the billion dollar empire that's come out of a passion. Imagine it. Imagine it. Oh, I can't wait to hear what that is because I know some of your passions uh, and some of them I, you know, wholeheartedly endorse and then others, mm, not so much. <laughs> so might I, be one of those ones. I look forward to that. If you want to suggest your own passion we could do something on, you can get in contact with us. Uh, we're on, uh, I'm Neil, at Neil Delamere Comedy on uh, Instagram. Uh, we have at, why would you tell me that on Instagram? And you're at... Dave Today FM, that's where you'll find me. Okay, thank you for this episode, Mr. Neil Delamere. Uh, tune in to us again next week. Thanks to everybody for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.